Good afternoon, ladies and gentlemen, and welcome to another episode of The Daily Friend Wrap. I am your host, Nicholas Lorimer, today joined by Mr. Chris Hutting. Let's start off with our first news story today, and this is an examination of some of the problems with South Africa's, South Africa's fiscal position that have been revealed, or come, at least come into focus, not so much revealed, but come into focus by the Minister of Finance's most recent budget tabled in Parliament. And that is that a very small number of not just individuals, but also companies are holding up the South African fiscus. So uh, personal income tax generates about 40% of South Africa's total tax revenue. Uh, something around, I think, 16% is produced, is uh, paid by corporate tax. And then VAT is a, is a significant chunk of, of some of the remainders. Um, although personal income tax remains, I think, the most important. So it's kind of, I think, a relatively well-known fact that only about 12% of South Africa's population pays personal income tax. But what is less well-known is the actual small percentage of people who pay the majority of our tax. Only 862,000 people approximately pay around 60% of all the personal income tax. Then when you look at the number of companies, around 770, according to economist Davi Ruet, are paying 66% of all corporate income tax, which means that if one of those high net worth individuals moves away or one of those companies goes under or decides to move to another country or anything like that, the fiscus can take a very serious hit. And when you consider that there are now something like 28 million people on grants, the fact that government is spending almost half of its, uh, more than half of its money on just paying the salary of various government workers, it really feels like South Africa is, in terms of money, a bit of an upside down pyramid with this really small group of people supporting this very, very large um, uh, state machinery and welfare state. And the problem with that is that... Uh, if anyone has tried to balance a pyramid upside down like that, it's not very stable. Chris, what do you make of this? I think we should mention the, it's not a proviso, I don't want to use that word, but the point around, you know, how others arguing against us in this particular regard will say, well, everyone pays VAT, everyone pays a fuel levy, so everyone's contributing and et cetera, et cetera. I'll accept those arguments, but then you still come back and ask the question, is that spending effective? Um, is it where is the majority of it going? Is it going towards bureaucrat salaries, the public sector wage bill? If you look at the outcomes in terms of uh, public education, public health care, if you've got such you know, contributions in terms of tax revenue, where is it actually going? Um, I think Fitch also recently highlighted the issues around revenue projections and how they think National Treasury are a bit too optimistic in some of their revenue projections. So that means in time, the more pressure points you reach, across income strata, so middle, uh, lower, middle, higher income uh, tax uh, payers, as well as companies, the more pressure points there are, the more cost of living issues you chip away uh, in all avenues in terms of revenue collection. And that in turn means cuts to things like social welfare, um, other forms of government spending, where even those who advocate for a strong developmental state can't necessarily, you can't balance the books as it were, you run into issues around debt repayments, um, and then serious issues around your fiscal sustainability and responsibility. So that is all to say, none of this happens overnight. It's trends over a long period of time. The sort of incentives you create for productive individuals to remain in your country or not, productive companies as well, to invest over the long term, not just to take advantage of short-term opportunities to actually create jobs and 
upskill people around them, upskill people across supply and value chains. That sort of process becomes all the more difficult to reverse the longer you head down, the longer you're on a downward trajectory. So you need to ask the question, if that's your trend line for the last 5, 10, 15 years, what can you change in terms of policy, legislation, incentives to reverse that trend, to ensure that that sort of thing doesn't happen, that people choose South Africa versus other places that are setting themselves apart nowadays? There's this um, tendency in South African politics, particularly uh, on the left, to kind of pit the sort of poor against the wealthy or the poor against the middle class or something like that. Um, but I think what this stat shows, particularly in the way that South Africa is working at the moment, if you want a generous welfare state, if you want an expansive government that provides a large number of services, you really do have to help out the middle class and you have to help out those businesses so that they can provide the taxes that enable you to pay out all of those uh, redistributive ventures. And so as long as there's this sort of antagonism between um, to, uh, by, by, by the ruling party towards the middle class, towards business, which we see so much, and we've seen, a, you know, I think a fair amount of it in the most recent um, um, ANC's manifesto, uh, as long as that antagonism and that hostility remains, that over-regulation, over-taxation, all these kind of things, you're going to strangle the golden goose, so to speak, that is providing the resources necessary to keep very many people from starvation and suffering. Um, so it's not just good for the middle class to take the pressure off economically. It's good for the poor as well. Okay, let's move on to our next story. And this is, uh, speaking of the ANC's manifesto, one of their new ideas about how to improve South Africa's economy. There's a lot of focus in the ANC manifesto about industrialization and how they want to transform South Africa's uh, economy into a more industrialized one. Um, some of the ideas here are that there will be an export tax that raw materials being uh, sold from South Africa will be taxed to try and encourage them to be beneficiated here. So in other words, uh, you know, rather than selling the more raw versions of the materials that they will have to process them here. There are some problems, however, um, with this. So the idea is to put uh, export taxes on what are called by the ANC essential raw materials like cobalt, lithium, graphite, chromite, manganese, and platinum to encourage local value addition, particularly for low carbon production. However, the problem is that South Africa's business and labor environment is so toxic for many businesses that it just won't be worth the cost. They won't be able to make any kind of real profit if they actually try to beneficiate here. And so what you'll probably just get is rather than an increase in beneficiation, you'll just see a decrease in exports. Chris, am I right there? What, what do you make of this? I definitely think that's one possibility, but you also might just see companies, exporters of all stripes, try and avoid going through so quote-unquote proper channels. So already due to the... I don't want to say the declining capabilities of Transnet, but the destructive impact of Transnet's lack of any sort of skills to run the ports, railways, all that sort of thing. You're seeing more and more trade move to countries like Namibia, Mozambique, from South Africa to head out uh, onto the continent, but also out into the rest of the world. So if you impose these sorts of, I think, punitive measures, um, these tariff trade barriers, as it were, you just incentivize other forms of economic activity to take place, which means, as linked to our first story, your tax revenues become lower over time. So you, you, you sort of increase the ingenuity for companies. They don't want to deal with the bureaucracy. They don't agree with it in the first place because they see that those tax revenues, tariff revenues, might not be used effectively in any case. 
So let's just find other ways to circumvent these things. Um, I think that that attitude might be becoming all the more prevalent as that there's even more of a separation of trust between businesses, citizens, and the government. Um, this sort of thing, you know, you talk about the hubris of central planners and unintended consequences. I think this is a classic example of that sort of economics 101 lesson that the current governing party, the current government doesn't seem to learn time after time, regardless of the policies they implement. And at the end of the day, it impacts the country as a whole uh, in the long run, because you're just going to ensure and incentivize that companies either try and avoid these measures or they relocate to elsewhere. Um, they still try and tap South Africa's natural resources, but they do their manufacturing, et cetera, et cetera, elsewhere. And you can impose all the export tariffs you want if you don't have reliable electricity, reliable logistics, get a handle on high crime rates. You've still got massive costs for local manufacturing. So at the end of the day, that sort of thing isn't going to mean at really it's going to deliver the sort of things you that you say you want to attain. Okay, let's move on to our last story for today. And this is about the Speaker of Parliament, Pisa Kwakula, who is uh, looking like she's in danger of facing an inquiry over apparently unilaterally hiking the salary of the Secretary to Parliament. So recently, the Secretary to Parliament, Koli George, was appointed to Parliament. Um, he uh, was coming from, I think, the South African Local Government Association, SALGA, and Parliament agreed that he would have a salary of 2.6 million rand. However, it's emerged that it looks like he's getting a salary of a much higher amount, in fact, about 4.4 million rand. And the accusation is now being leveled against the Speaker that she essentially rigged the appointment process of the Secretary by getting him to uh, uh, submit, uh, uh, you know, uh, get into the process at this low salary level, but then is just paying him a similar amount to what he uh, was getting paid at Salga. Um, the DA has launched a complaint. They say that she has violated the code of conduct and ethics for members by improperly enriching George and lying about it. They also allege that she excluded other candidates from the job. Um, the uh, Powers and Privileges Committee of Parliament has given her until next Monday to provide written explanation for the salary bump. This is only after a few months after he joined Parliament in June of 2022. Chris, what do you make uh, of this saga? I mean, not a great thing for Parliament, an institution that is, I think, lacking a lot of goodwill at the moment. No, 100%. But I go back to, usually with the sort of thing, I go back to things like state capture, where it caught so many people off guard. They thought, how would this kind of thing happen? Well, nothing around incentives, attitudes, ideology, none of that has changed to mean that kind of thing won't happen again. And this is a small example thereof. These things build on each other. The day-to-day -day decisions feed into each other and ensure then that, that, that sort of thing. Not, not that it will happen, but that it must happen. It's a necessary consequence. I think this particular story, as aggravating and infuriating as it is, is another good example of how Parliament not necessarily has fallen, but how the day-to-day -day attitudes and standards aren't there in the first place. And you'll need a lot of work to change that kind of thing. And it has to come from someone like the speaker. Um, but that isn't to say it's only on the person of the speaker. It has to be everyone throughout it, holding each other accountable, making sure the right sort of things or procedures are followed, the questions are asked, all that sort of thing. If they can't hold each other to that standard, then I don't think there's a high chance they're going to hold the executive to that standard, for example. That 
these things feed into each other. So uh, we'll see what comes from it. I mean, kudos to the DA for pressing this issue. Um, I think it must be done. These sorts of things build on each other. If you don't stop them early on or at least question them, then you're almost ceding to it. So let's see what comes from it. Right. And the speaker is not some nothing position in our government. Mm. Parliament is the most powerful institution in the country, has the greatest democratic mandate of any institution in the country. It sits right at the center of our system of government. And the speaker is the head of that institution. And the speaker, therefore, has to have, I think, a pretty much uh, unchallenged um, uh, uh, record and, and uh, level of respect. And so I think it's extremely important that the speaker makes sure that whatever's going on here was proper, and if it was improper, that they resign, um, because you can't have a, a speaker with any questions floating over their head. Anyway, that's all the time we have for today. We hope you found this show interesting. We will see you tomorrow on the Daily Friend Wrap. That's a wrap. Thank you.